Andy, here's one for you. We have always registered in all the states where we solicit funds, but this year, our auditors suggested that we also needed to file tax returns in any state where we have raised money. This is the first time we've heard of this. Is this accurate or a bit overkill? Look, it's certainly a sort of a broad brush statement that you need to file tax returns in any state where you've raised money, because I don't, I don't think that's what the law is. The, the real difficulty with this is, so, okay, so we'll, we'll start at the good point. So congratulations on, on soliciting enough funds to be able to meet the threshold to have to register in all of these different states, because the rules for each state are different. And the, unfortunately, there's not a single sort of reference thing that we can send you to that says, here's where all the rules are all written down. And if you know of something like this, please let us know and we'll put it, we'll, we'll make sure everybody's aware of it because this would be a fantastic resource. The challenge is like, for example, if you're soliciting funds in New York state and you meet the threshold and I don't remember offhand what it is, but it's like, it's something like $250,000. So if you raise or $200,000, something like that. So if you've raised more than $200,000 in New York state, then you're required to do some things. And it's like, send. you have to file a thing, you have to send them a copy of your 990 once it's done and a couple of other things. The problem is it's different for every single state in the US. Some states don't care at all. As long as you do, like in Nevada, as long as you do the charitable solicitation registration statement and you keep that up to date and you've got the language on the webpage that says what you need to have on the webpage, you are good to go. They don't, they don't want a copy of your 990. Um, they just want what's on the registration statement and the and to know that you did it. But every state is different. And the only way that you're going to um, know what it is is to do the research on every single state that you're, that you're soliciting funds in and figure out if you meet the threshold and if that threshold has additional requirements, whether or not you're complying those, with those requirements. So if your auditor is saying you need to register, you need to file tax returns in any state where you've raised money, um, that's that's not a true statement. And I would ask your auditor to please provide what is giving them the information to be able to tell you that. Like what, can you please provide the the statutes that we're not complying with because that's their job as an auditor. If they're telling you you need to do something, they need to give you the rationale. They just can't make stuff up and go, hey, you also need to, you know, paint the building blue. <laughs> that's yeah. like, you have to tell yeah. me why. Um, if And so the other thing is if, if you're really concerned Frankly, the only thing you can do is to reach out to an attorney that's familiar with this kind of stuff and pay that person to do the research because what they're going to have to do is they're going to have to look at the statutes in all 50 states that you're raising money in, figure out specifically what the statute says, and then give you a map and say, here's what you have to do in New York. Here's how you have to do in Florida. Here's what you have to do in Nevada. Right. Um, oh, and right. So that's, pain. that's. It's really the only way to do it. But if, but a lot of these have a threshold. So like a quarter of a million dollars out of New York is a lot of money. So if you, if you're raising a quarter of a million dollars out of New York, like, yeah, you should probably be complying with the requirements because their attorney general is going to eat you for lunch if they decide that they don't like you. So, so it's, it's better to be on the front end. I think it's probably if, if you're really in that league where you're raising that amount of money, where this is an issue for you, um, it's, it's probably worth the, the legal fees to make sure that you're doing things correctly. I think, though, one of the things I like about what you said is the idea that it's okay to question or ask for proof from professionals that you hire. 
I, I think there's this sense sometimes, oh, we hired an auditor. So of course, everything they say, you know, is I, I need to go by. And obviously you hired them for their expertise, but it's also okay if something doesn't gut check right with you like this, to say, hey, I, I've never heard of this before. Can you give me some proof or like some background? Because I am going to also have to share that with my board or whatever, you know, like I just, I think there's, there's sometimes a fear of doing that. And I wish, I wish nonprofits would, would realize, you know, be empowered to do that. Um, and I just, I, I don't know, my head is spinning by this question because I think it would be a nightmare to have to, I, I understand that if you're raising a lot of money in different States and you should abide by the rules, but Oh my gosh, it seems hard enough to just file a tax return in your home state alone <laughs> doing that. It just I feel like every every nonprofit seems to struggle with getting things done on time because of how taxed they are. So I'm like, oh my God, like how just time taxed they are that I don't know how they they ever comply with these kinds of things. So I that's why people like you exist, Andy, because you <laughs> keep them you keep them straight. Yeah. And a lot of these, I mean, when you look at the different statutes, a lot of them are, um, if you raise more than $250,000 and you employed a professional fundraiser, which means that you've hired a third party firm to do fundraising on your behalf. And so that means you're, what they're, what they're trying to catch is people who are sending things about, um, veterans, that you're donating money to veterans. And it's actually just a big direct mail scam where the fundraiser that's actually doing the direct mail is keeping 90% of the proceeds and only 10% is being distributed to the nonprofit. So they're, yeah. th the reason these are in place is to catch out these really bad actors. And so in, in a lot of cases, even if you are at that $250,000 threshold, if you're not employing a professional fundraiser doing those kinds of things, sometimes they don't apply to you as well, which is why you really want to have somebody who knows what they're talking about. Look at the actual statute to give you what that opinion is. Um, one place to start too is the the National Council of Nonprofits. We'll put the link in the show notes. They have a a resource page about state filing requirements, and it's a good starting point. And it really just kind of points you to the state office that manages their charity stuff. So, like in Nevada, it would point you to the Secretary of State, give you an email address, give you a phone number and an address. So, so it doesn't like tell you what the answer is, but at least gives you the place where, where you can start the research, which is really, really helpful. So we'll put that in the show notes. Um, but, but yeah, sort of maybe to touch on that. I mean, you brought up the relationship with the auditor too. Um, this was not the question, but the relationship with your financial auditor should be one of sort of mutual respect and learning and that you should look at that as they're trying to help you. And if at any time you feel like they are throwing things at you because they are feel like they're in a position of power, that is the time that you need to seriously consider finding another auditor. That relationship should be um, friendly and a two-way street. And they should, you know, they should never say, you need to do this. They should always say, here's what we've found that that explains that this is a requirement. And and here's some information that you can use to determine whether or not this applies to you. Um, so if they're ever just throwing stuff at you and saying you have to do this and not giving you any backup, that's a that's a hundred percent clue that you need to either have a conversation with that audit partner and say like, so what do you think you're doing here, or find yourself a new one. Nonprofit governance. Nonprofit answers. Nonprofit board. Nonprofit management. Nonprofit marketing. Nonprofit resources. The Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits presents. Nonprofit Everything 
the podcast about everything nonprofit with your host, Andy Shurek and Stacy Wedding. Hello and welcome to another episode of Nonprofit Everything and Happy New Year. This is the first episode of 2021 and we're really excited that you're joining us today. We've got some good questions coming in. Um, keep them coming. That's the only way this podcast works. Send us your questions, your burning nonprofit issues. Um, actually, no burning issues. Just call 911 if that's the problem. But anything else, send it to us. We would be delighted to answer them. And we've still got stickers. Send us uh, your name. Actually, you're just your address. We don't even need your name. And we will send you a sticker when you uh, send us your question. And with that, we're going to jump right in. Today's episode is sponsored by the HR Collaborative. The HR Collaborative was formed to help build nonprofit strengths through improved human resources. It provides professional development opportunities, networking, and sharing of best practices on HR issues faced by nonprofit organizations. The Collaborative meets bi-monthly. Membership is free and open to anyone who works for a nonprofit and has HR responsibilities. For more information or to attend an upcoming meeting, visit their website at www.hrcollaborativelv.org. Check out the Nonprofit Everything show notes for more information. We are seriously contemplating shifting from a free service to a fee-for-service model for our nonprofit. We have evaluated our model and have a proven track record of success and effectiveness. Those we provide services to love our work from what we can tell through survey results and conversations with them. How do you suggest we shift to a fee-for-service model? Ooh, that's a juicy one. So hmm, I almost feel like I don't have enough information on this one to to give like the definitive, like, here's what you need to do. Because the, the, the challenge that comes up is that you, up until now, you've been providing something for free and you've decided that you no longer want to provide it for free. You want to have someone pay for it. And, and that's inevitably a much harder lift for the people that are paying for it than you imagine. Um, so like, I mean, we'll go back to the food bank world. So for food banks for a long time um, gave the sort of the, the concept of the food bank model was that it was a whole bunch of agencies that would kind of get together and sort of pool their pool their food asks into one spot and then kind of bank it. And then the individual agencies would then sort of take what they needed and distribute it out. And that there was a little bit of a fee involved when the, when the food came out from the food bank out to the agency, they kicked in to sort of help support the food bank. Um, over time, they sort of realized that, that getting fundraising kind of all together in one spot made it a lot easier to fundraise. It was easier to talk to donors from like a community-wide perspective instead of an individual pantry perspective. So the food bank kind of grew into this monstrosity where it's, it's then kind of monopolizing all of the food acquisition as well as the food distribution through these agencies. Um, and so the relationship between the agencies and the food banks changed. And during some of that relationship change, um, some food banks dropped their fees to what the agencies were paying on certain products to zero. So you could come get as much fresh produce as you wanted. We're not going to charge you for fresh produce, right? And then after a while, life happens, business happens in the 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 so the business model of the food banks starts to shift a little bit and providing food 
to the agencies for free is no longer no longer viable for the food bank that they need to start adding just a nominal fee, a penny a pound, three cents a pound, which is nothing for, for some of the product that's being distributed. And you would have thought that the world had ended, that all of a sudden, you know, they used to pay for it. It wasn't a problem. Then it became free. And then going back to just paying a nominal fee for it causes the just a world's most massive, and this isn't necessarily three square that I'm talking about. This is like every food bank in the US causes yeah. this massive upheaval because you've gone from free to just even any money at all. <laughs> um, and so there's, and then there's all this, this, you know, rending of garments and gnashing of teeth above, you know, you've moved my cheese and we've relied on this particular model for so long. And now it's a completely different model. And there's lots of anger and there's lots of, community building based on trying to put the pieces back together because you, you made this one tiny little business change. So, so it's a fraught question. And, and the, the, the conversations that you need to have, I would suggest that you need to have with your, with who you're serving, like you can tell through survey results and conversations with them that they love your work, but you need to do through survey results and conversations with them is would they still love your work if they had to pay for it? Because because ultimately they're your they're your customers now they this you know one of the one of the aggravating yet really interesting things about nonprofits is that they have two totally separate customers they have the donors that are helping fund it and then they have the the constituents that are actually receiving the services and they're two totally separate baskets and you need to balance them at the exact same time so finding out like will the people you're serving you know are they like, how are they going to feel about you if they have to pay for that service? And then be really explicit about it and say, here's here's what we're thinking. Here's what we want to do. How would you feel about that? Because you may discover that they're like, sure, great. That's fine. We, you know, we were always freaked out that it was free anyway. <laughs> like we, we've always wanted to pay for it. So thanks for asking. Or they could be like, not in a zillion years and we would smear you in the newspaper, right? <laughs> so trying to figure out well, like where they land, you got to be really upfront and honest with them about what you're considering. I think that my biggest piece of advice with this would be not to rush into this model to do the the legwork of those preserving those relationships to what you said, Andy, and that is going to take some time. But having some of the people you serve be your thought partners around this, as well as react to it and see the reaction and help you think through how best to roll this out to others like them, I think is, is absolutely the way you've got to go. And that takes time. And I don't think it's done by survey. It's definitely one-on-one conversations or small group conversations, but, but it is, is really sort of saying we value you enough. We want to explain our thinking of why we've moved to, or we're thinking of moving to this model and we just want to get a gut check. Um, and, and then, you know, you can really kind of then have a better, if that analysis hasn't happened, I think you need that before you can actually truly decide whether you want to shift to this model. Um, you know, another thing, and and perhaps this is not a, this is probably not at all a fair correlation, but I'm thinking about it in the business world. When you're, you hire someone to provide a service for you, and um, obviously you already paid, but the fee goes up. You don't love it, but you've already been getting, you know, you've already been paying. So you kind of understand with inflation and just costs rising, why that may happen. I just wonder if organizations 
could do a better job on the front end of sharing the value of what they're providing. You know, hey, you're getting in the food example, right? You're getting food from us. And if you were budgeting for this, you, it would cost you this, like, but, but you're getting it, you know, from us at a discounted rate or, or for free at no cost. Um, I mean, I think sometimes helping people understand the value, because I get the sense here, there's a quite, there's some value tied to what you're offering that you're trying to kind of reap the benefits of. And so is there a way to roll that out and start to introduce that idea of, of the value of your services or the value of, of whatever it is, product you're providing to those you serve? Um, and, and maybe there's even some sort of a transition plan. Um, again, I think your constituents can tell you this, but maybe not everybody, maybe people get grandfathered in, right? They, they get transitioned into a fee-based model and it doesn't have, you know, you give them time to plan for it themselves, to budget for it. Um, you don't do this where you just announce it one day. I think that's where you see these things go terribly awry when it's like, you know, there's been all this internal thinking and work done and analysis done, and then you just announce it. And guess what? Effective January 1, you're going to have to do, you know, pay us this. I mean, that never goes well. So so how do you kind of move into this, figure out perhaps, perhaps maybe, you know, some of your current customers don't move into it for another year or two, but new customers like automatically do like the new people you're serving or new organizations you're serving move into it right away. So, um, so I think there's some ways to do this that, that won't, you know, you're going to get some pushback, but that won't cause that, that headline story at the paper, which none of us want. Um, and, you know, a, another thought is, is maybe a scholarship fund that um, I've seen organizations that do offer fee for service models or transition to those. And, They've had donors like underwrite kind of a call it a whatever you want to call it, but sort of a support fund for those who absolutely can't, you know, find the means to get this service. Perhaps there's a process to still help them um, and, and not everybody has access to it, but those most in need do. So so a lot of ideas out there. And, and honestly, I think if you if you kind of just talk to the people you're serving, you'll get you'll get a lot of the answers you need. Yeah, I like that. I like those I like those solutions, especially the one where, you know, you 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 can kind of grandfather people in, but then the new people get get the new the new rate. I mean, interesting there this is this is a very common situation with things that are provided on the internet for free, like, like mail systems, right? You, you get, you have a, you can get a Gmail account completely for free. And if Gmail just decided to start charging you three cents for, you know, three cents a year for mail, like millions of people would just bail because they're just like, they're the, the difference between zero and one is infinite. <laughs> Whereas the difference between like three and five, which is like much larger feels less infinite because you're already paying something. So there's actually a ton of research just on this specifically related to all of these, non, all of these, sorry, all of these tech companies that started with this, you know, get it for free business model. And then they figure you get hooked and then they'll start charging you for it. Like, like a yeah. drug dealer or something. Um, <laughs> so there's, there's a ton of research on it. And, and a lot of it says, you know, it's really, really hard to do well, and you're going to have to expect an awful lot of customer defections. Um, 
And then some companies are big enough that they don't care and they do it anyway, or they, they change the terms and they say, this will go into effect two years from now. So we're giving you plenty of time to find somebody else that does this. And you get the, the rending of garments and gnashing of teeth for a little while. And people kind of, they look around and they're like, actually, yeah, it's not that bad. I looked around to try to find something else that does what they do when I can't. And so it seems fair. And so, so they may get resigned to it. And so you don't have nearly the amount of customer defection because you gave them that really long runway to decide whether or not they could find um, an alternative provider of the service. So all of those, all of those things that you said, Stacey, are really good ideas of sort of easing the pain a little bit. So did I just get a gold star, Andy? You got a, I'll give you two gold stars oh, and, the, and a nonprofit everything sticker. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, did you happen to see um, my, my husband put when we, when that came out on Facebook, my husband actually put that he deserved multiple stickers because of how many times um, I'm, you know, saying to him, what are your, what are your nonprofit questions? <laughs> anyway, did. There was a whole banter it. for anyone listening. There was a whole banter on Facebook between us. It's a little embarrassing and, but uh, you know, for your, for your pleasure, you can go check it out and have a giggle. I've been working at a small nonprofit organization for the last year and a half, and our executive director has fought me tooth and nail about controlling every aspect of our fundraising strategies. She obsessively edits my donor communications, even thank you letters, dismisses my pleas for more timely check opening to expedite thank yous, refuses to leverage client stories, and has told me our donor communication doesn't always need to tie back to the donor's support. When I try to talk to her about best practices, she responds that if someone doesn't like our approach, they would probably have stopped giving anyway, and they're just looking for an excuse. I don't want to leave, but I am at my wit's end. How can I softly tell my boss her fundraising intuition is not in line with best practices and she's impacting our ability to fundraise effectively? Oh, heavy sigh here. Um, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to the person who wrote this that you're going through that. I think we've all been in positions like that and it kind of stinks. Uh, I, I, I always have, I always have questions about wanting to try to get in the mind of that executive director and understand a little bit about their background and maybe why they're, why they're doing this or trying to control these small things because perhaps they feel out of control in other parts of the organization, but but I know that you know sort of going into being a psychologist here isn't really what you're looking for. Mm -hmm. I just I just think it helps when you can put yourself in the other person's shoes and think about their perspective and perhaps what works with them or what doesn't. And I mean, one of my one of my questions here or thoughts to you would be. Does your does your boss, does the ED do this with other staff, if there are other staff? Is this sort of a just, or is it with just you? Because I think that that shares the difference between a style of, of management versus perhaps an ED that is just not responding to, to the approach you might be taking with the ED. So so I'm wondering if your approach, I mean, it sounds like you've been very much coming at this from a best practice standpoint. Uh, and yet I'm wondering if if maybe there's somebody else the ED could hear this from 
in a better way. Maybe the ED doesn't want to look silly or foolish because you know more than he or she does. Uh, so, so I'm just wondering if maybe it's about kind of changing your approach. Um, you know, thinking about this from a perspective of, of, of what if we tried like coming right out and saying directly, what if we tried X or will you let me pilot X or, uh, can I spend a little bit of time putting together a plan? It's, it's the end of the year. And as we go into a new calendar year, I'd love to put together some ideas and, and run them by you about how we might execute this. And I'm just thinking then that gives you the opportunity. You get the buy-in on the front end instead of coming in, being sort of the knowledge base expert that maybe is intimidating your ED and you get to do some research and come back with, with maybe a slow process of why don't we try this just one new thing and see how it works. So, so that's, if I were in your shoes, I would probably take that approach because you did say, how can you softly, <laughs> how can you softly tell your boss? I mean, there's obviously much more direct and harder ways to do this. I don't know if that will cost you your job. Uh, but, but that would be my approach. What do you think, Yabi? I don't, you know, this, I agree with you that it's kind of a psychology question that you're trying to kind of figure out how to outwit your boss and get them to do something that they seem to be incapable of doing, which is listening to someone else's opinion about how something should work. So, I mean, you kind of explicitly say that you don't want to leave, but, you know, having, having worked in a whole bunch of organizations and I have worked with, with EDs that have been incredibly controlling and change everything. I mean, so this was actually prior to, this is a very long time ago. So, so if you think, you know, who I'm talking about, you don't know who I'm talking about. So this was, um, I, the, the, the executive director would, we would work on these long sort of reports, these things that would go out um, to to a whole bunch of people. They weren't fundraising related, but they were, there was long sort of technical information about nonprofit stuff. And we'd work on it really hard. We'd give it to her. She would mark it up in just the most absurd ways. And, and for the most part, her edits were okay. They made sense. I mean, she was in charge, so you kind of let her do that. So she'd give it back to you and you'd make those edits. And then fix a couple of grammar things because she just worked with a red pen in the margin. It was this was pre like track changes in Word, right? So she'd make all the red marks in the margin with like real editors language. So we had to learn what that all meant. And so you'd make all these changes, then you kind of clean it up and you'd give it back to her for the next review. And she'd go back and change everything that she just changed. So it was like like you were really like your your contribution to it was nothing other than just to to clean up what she gave you and give her a new clean copy to then revise again. Um, it was immensely frustrating. And, and, and we didn't at the time feel like we had, you know, based on the difference between us and the ED, we didn't feel like we had the authority to say, you know, what would be awesome is if you could not make us revise the thing that you just revised. Like if you needed to do two drafts, why don't you do two drafts and like kind of leave us out of it? Um, so, so the, so the sort of long-winded way of saying that that some people just can't be helped that that the the executive director may just be the kind of person that's going to do that kind of thing and your your opinions regardless of whether they're right are not going to not going to sway that person in any way whatsoever um so 
so there's there's lots of good fundraising jobs out there. There are lots of managers and executive directors that would be delighted to have someone who knows what they're doing, someone who's you know very interested in best practices and knows how things ought to be done, that are excited about getting um, timely check opening happening so that thank yous can go out more quickly because they understand that that does have an impact. Um, so I wouldn't put that completely out of the out of the question. If if you're dead set on not leaving, if this is like your dream job and you cannot leave it, um, there are other ways. I think to um, if if you're you're having difficulty convincing your ED that that they need to change direction, so so come up with ways to change direction that doesn't involve their consent. Uh, maybe there is a way to get the checks opened faster so that the thank yous can be done more quickly. Uh, if you have the opportunity to do your own your own uh, goals, like some, if you're, if you've got like a formal goal setting process where you, you determine what your goals are going to be. And then your manager determine just sort of checks you on those goals, put those kinds of things in your goals. So put that we want the, the thank you notes to be out the door, you know, within 48 hours of the mail hitting or the, the email hitting the inbox. We want that to be part of my metric. And, and it's going to be harder for the ED to go like, why is that in there, right? You know, I want you focused on X because I don't think they're probably going to do that because that's you setting your own goals. And there's nothing wrong with that kind of thing either. So I don't know. And, and obviously, Stacy and my ways that we approach people are different. Um, <laughs> just, just a little, I just mean, a little, like I, I would tend to, I mean, and, and again, the, once you're, once you're a, shown that you're a good employee, it's kind of hard to get fired if you, if you're trying to make things better. Um, so, so you, you can, I mean, your, your ED may resent you. They may make your life more difficult, but, but if you have a legitimate argument for like why something needs to be done better, like why why thank you notes need to go out within forty eight hours of the of the the gift arriving, um, and then you you know you, you don't have to show or you know do a research report on why that's a good idea. That's just obviously a good idea. So so just try to implement it and continue to be irritating about it. And eventually <laughs> they're either gonna fire you and you can find a better job with a better manager. Or, or they're just going to acquiesce and be like, ah, "This is apparently really important to you, so I'm going to let you do it." I, I have, I have mixed feelings when when we read this question because there, there's, I'm wondering if the person who is in this situation is actually handling it too passively, too softly, you know, going about it about you know using best practices which which I think is a is a really smart strategy but but perhaps it's not about doing it softly but saying listen I really care about this organization and all the peers and networks and all the research out there says xyz will you let me just try this one thing like let's just experiment can we just experiment it's not going to you know and, and measure success like it's not going to you know, make our organization implode if perhaps it's not as successful. But, but I mean, in some ways I go, when you have a boss like this, maybe it's about being more direct or saying, I'm really feeling like you've got a lot of resistance to this. And I'm just trying to understand why, because I, it would help me understand where your concerns are so we can figure out a workaround. I mean, so, I mean, a direct approach can, can help too. Um, sometimes kind of snap someone out of it. I think that another sort of more 
backhanded but valuable way of doing this would be survey your donors. I mean, maybe maybe your executive director is correct, or maybe you are correct, but maybe it's about, hey, I would love to just get some, some feedback from the people giving to us and find out what they think we're doing well and what they think we could improve on and then design a strategy around that for 2021. Uh, that that really takes into account where our donors are at and what they're feeling. Like, I think something like that is really hard to argue with, whether your ED is on a power trip or a micromanaging control trip or whatever it is. Like, the, the ED, I mean, how could an ED say no to that? I mean, I think it, I think that's a really reasonable request and one one that I'd love to see you try and let us know how it goes. Yeah. I mean, then that, that's, that actually kind of makes me nervous. I mean, so just thinking as, yeah, as a, as a former manager of staff, um, it always bugged me when somebody that worked for me decided that they wanted someone else's job and would start doing, you know, like, like taking initiatives of things that they were totally not prepared for um, just because they, they, were bored doing what they were hired to do and decided they wanted to do something different. So there's one, it's one thing to be sort of proactive and try to do what you've been hired to do better. It's something different when, I mean, I I would, I would be nervous if somebody sort of a line level fundraising staff started contacting donors independently to ask them how they wanted to be communicated with. That feels like that's something that kind of like would is, is a little bit farther out of the chain of command than I would feel comfortable with. I mean, I could see you getting in a lot of trouble for that. Maybe wait, 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 wait. Let me stop you for a minute, though. So, I mean, you're making the assumption this person's a line level fundraising staff, but we don't know that, right? We don't know what size organization this is. No, and I'm not saying they should do this without the ED, but I think they might like a way around this would be to say to the ED when they're saying our donors are fine with everything the way it is, they keep giving to us. I think it would be interesting to say, what if we, what if we do a survey and ask some questions that can just help inform our work moving forward? Like, even if this person isn't the one that executes it, but offering that as an idea, like, seems to me like that would work. But is that, I mean, is that, does that concern you? No, I think I like that better. Okay, <laughs> I like so it when you, when you phrase I it that way, it's like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like, <laughs> don't please don't just go do this. Like, no. <laughs> <laughs> like that would scare me. Yeah. I mean, and then maybe like find, find, I mean, there are great organizations where you can meet other people that are doing the same thing you are. There's, there's YNPN, there's AFP, there's Anne, where you can actually talk to people that are, that are working in the space. And, and maybe that's a good time to like sort of have conversations with peers about what, you know, is, is my, is this donor letter really bad? Like, look what I started with and look how she marked it up. Like, like, am I crazy? And like, you know, if you have that kind of information and you can share that with someone who's a peer and they can either be like, well, yeah, your grammar's terrible. No wonder it's all marked up or no, yours is great. I don't know what she's changed. Right. So like find somebody that's willing to give you decent feedback too. And you can get, you know, maybe that's, that's something that you can get help with. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, good grief. There's, there's a lot of ways to approach this. Right. And uh, I don't know if we provided any clarity at all, but, but I mean, I do, I do think it needs to be your own style. So I'm going to share just, you shared a story and Andy, I'm going to share a story real quickly, but it's a, it's a little bit different, but I had a boss many moons ago that I just, I, it was eating away at me because I didn't 
I didn't, I saw all these gaps in what they were missing and how they were leading and managing. And I saw what it was doing to the organization. And I was, I was in a higher level position, but I was, because I'm not a confrontational person, uh, I was a nervous wreck. I remember being up all night worried about having this conversation, but I was determined to have this conversation with my boss. And it was super scary. And as much as I felt it was direct, it probably wasn't half as direct as what people who are truly direct would have done. But I had the conversation and I just remember a, the relief I felt because I at least just like put it out there. Like for me, I was like, okay, if for some reason I were to lose my job over this, which I wouldn't think would happen since I've got a good track record and I'm a good employee, but if I were to lose my job over this, you know, it is what it is. And I'm willing to take that risk, but because I care enough about this organization and making it better, I'm just going to share some observations with, with the ED. And it was an interesting, I mean, obviously at the time the ED did not, um, did not love that conversation and um, was fairly emotional about it, but it actually ended up turning some things around eventually. I mean, it took a little while after sort of the reaction and the probably some hurt from the executive director, but, but turned it around. So so I think in some ways you have to kind of look at yourself and say, what are you willing, like, is this going to continue to be something you softly tiptoe around or passively handle, or do you want to take a more direct approach? And once you figure that out, hopefully there's some nuggets in what we said that can be helpful. And we are out of time. That is sad. I was enjoying this one. We will be back in two weeks for another half hour of Nonprofit Everything. For Stacy, I'm Andy Shurek. Thanks for joining us. Remember, send us your questions. Check out the Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits. Do all that cool stuff. Get a sticker. And we will see you in a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm.